This is Ringler Radio, where you get all the latest news and information about the structured settlement industry from the experts in the know. Ringler Associates, the undisputed leader in structured settlements for more than 30 years and the only broker you need. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by the life markets that issue structured settlement annuities, including Allstate, American General Structured Settlements, Aviva, The Hartford, Liberty Life, MetLife, New York Life, John Hancock, and Prudential. Now, join Ringler Radio host, Larry Cohen. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Ringler Radio. I'm Larry Cohen, the head of Ringler Associates Northeast Operations, and your host. Every Ringler Radio show can be downloaded from our website, ringlerassociates.com, or thelegaltalknetwork.com. Well, today we're here in lovely Newport Beach, California, at the Ringler Associates annual meeting. This is something we do every year, and... Uh, we typically hold it out here in Newport Beach, and it makes for a nice uh, attendance. Everybody wants to come out to this meeting. And this show we're having today is something rather unique for us here at Ringler Radio because it's actually part three of an ongoing discussion that started uh, some time ago with a show entitled Personal Injury Victims as a Unique Investor Class. And that first show discussed how personal injury victims evaluate their financial settlement decisions. And the show outlined how these victims are really part of what we call a unique investor class. We recently also continued that discussion with a show that focused on the relatively new area of behavioral finance, in which we talked about some of the motivations and biases that people bring with them to their decisions about investments and money, and how those behaviors can affect financial planning. And we hope to bring those two shows full circle today with a discussion of how the issues that arise in behavioral finance can specifically and profoundly affect personal injury victims as members of that unique investor class. Well, that's kind of a strong and long introduction to get us where we want to be today, but to help us understand all of that, we have with us once again Bill Wakeley of Ringler Associates in Philadelphia and Dr. Christopher Coyne of St. Joseph's University, also in Philadelphia. So Bill and Chris, welcome back to Ringler Radio. Thanks, Larry. Good to be here. Very nice to be back. Thanks for asking well, you know, this is uh, part three, as I mentioned, of a tremendous uh, discussion we've been having. And uh, one, of, one of the things I think we might want to do is take a minute or so to refresh our listeners on the discussions we had in our first two shows on the topic. And, uh, Bill, I, I think that's what we ought to do to kind of set the stage. I, I think that's a good idea, Larry. I'll kind of, as you said, help us bring bring this full circle a little bit. And I'll, I'll kind of go over the first show and maybe Chris can jump in on the second. Um Basically, our first show, for those who may remember, we, we talked about how personal injury victims really need to be looked at as, an, as a unique investor class unto themselves. They're unique not only because they're facing tough investment decisions like, like the rest of us are um, and the rest of the marketplace is nowadays, but they're facing those decisions in, a, in an emotional and physical disadvantage because they're personal injury victims. So the risk-reward dynamic is totally different than it is for other investors, which is obviously you know why we call them unique. So they're making critical decisions about their financial future using money that often has to last them for the rest of their lives, and they have to make that decision under very trying circumstances, and they have to get it right one time. Exactly. Chris, what about the second show? Give us a little uh, sketch. Well, we, we tried to flesh out some of the uh, components of behavioral finance because that's really what we're dealing with. Everybody remembers their economics classes, and even if they never took economics, they always hear about economic theory and rational economic man and, and all that kind of good stuff. And what we've witnessed over time, but it's become a, a bit more of an academic study at this point, 
is that people consistently have failed to act according to those ideas and concepts that have been labeled rational economics. Typically, rational economics means that every time people get a, an opportunity, they're going to make the selfish decision. They're going to do uh, whatever that thing is that is most directly beneficial to them, and typically that involves money. But when we stop and look at, at people, what we see is that they don't make that choice routinely. We talked about uh, a bridge that can only handle traffic one way at a time. We routinely see people give up the right of way to let somebody else pass. That violates the common ideas that we have of rational economic man. And, and I think the most important uh, component that we really uh, examine in the behavioral finance area is the role of emotion. I mean, economic thought and decision-making is supposed to be without emotion. But what we see and what we know, because we've all made these kinds of decisions, is that emotion plays a very big role in the decisions that we make. And sometimes it's good and sometimes it's not so good. But failure to account for that, failure to understand that, uh, creates certainly a lot of perplexities. No, no, so there, no question. kind of what we talked about in, in that second. We gave some specifics and explored the idea a little bit, but that's essentially what it was. Sure. Well, let's talk about where we're going to go from here. We already know that personal injury victims are unique. Uh, they're not typical investors, or at least they shouldn't be typical investors. So, Chris, does that mean that behavioral finance affects them even more profoundly than the average investor? Um, the short answer, I suppose, is yes. What, what we mean by that is not so much it, it, that the behavioral finance affects them more profoundly, but the fact that emotion involved in their decision-making has an impact that's going to be magnified beyond the norm. The view that I've always taken with regard to these kinds of settlements and the whole point behind a structured settlement is that somebody has determined that the individual receiving this settlement is not going to be able to achieve the economic uh, wherewithal later in their life that they would have had it not been for this particular accident, whatever it is. That's right. So the structured settlement is really that flow of income that they are giving up as a consequence of the injury. If they just leave it that way, the issue goes away. There, there's not a problem because the income flow that they have been denied has been made up by the income flow in the structured settlement. I think that's a good point, Chris. And, and you know, we also need to, to come back to the fact that essentially what we're talking about with a structured settlement here is the structured settlement substituting certainty Right. into a very complicated right. and, and uncertain financial future for these investors. And, I'm sorry, Bill, but, but that is exactly where the behavioral aspects come into play. Right, exactly. I mean, these folks, you know, their injuries, both both physical and emotional, you know, and you talked about the emotions, but the, these folks are, are physically, you know, affected, obviously, by these uh, by these injuries, but they're also emotionally affected. And, and they, re they require secure and steady income streams, often for the rest of their lives. So what they can't afford is to place that money into what is often a very volatile marketplace. 
and the volatility is the risk that we talk about. Uh, you, you look at a situation. Let's just assume that somebody has a huge pile of money that they put in the marketplace, financial marketplace. If the market goes down, you have two negative events that have occurred. What are they? Well, the one is the person must draw out some money so that they can live. They need standard living expenses, food, clothing, a uh, place to live, uh, whatever else. But then you also have the market reducing the total value of that investment pool that the person is now responsible for. And it's possible that they're never going to make up the double event. That's that's true. And, and, and what you raised just now brings us to what I know we've discussed before, but we need to talk about again. And that is the three concepts within the investment decision-making process. In other words, first, there are things that are inside our control, like not spending money set aside for something specific. And secondly, things that are outside our control, such as market risk and the fluctuations of the market. And then there's finally things that we consider investment overhead, such as investment fees, costs of certain funds, portfolio expenses, and taxes. So we have three different areas there in terms of uh, how we invest, what kind of decision-making we make. And uh, Bill, why don't you talk a little bit about these issues? Yeah, um, I'll address the actually the second one first, Larry, and, and I'm going to let Chris jump in on, on the other two. That, you know, the things outside your control, you know, Larry mentioned market risk and fluctuations. So we look at this and we say, okay, things outside your control, I mean, wow, that could be everything. I mean, you know, when you talk about markets and returns, you talk about market risk, interest rate risk, economic risk, price risk, you know, bond call risk. I mean, you, you, I could go on for hours. Look what's going. Look at what's going on right now in the economy. It's, it's, but it's, that's it's exactly it. Can I just interject quickly? Sure. Uh, the point is that not only is it outside people's control, most people don't even have the experience to understand what it is that's out there. So again, you have kind of a double whammy. They're not aware of it in the first place, and then they can't control it on top of that. Interesting. That's true. Chris, why don't you talk about the two the two others, the number one and number three, and, and, and I think uh, it'll bring some insight into our listeners. Well, control what you can control. This is, this is one of my mantras, you know. But what do we mean by that? The, the individuals have an income flow, whatever it is. Uh, at that point, they have about as much certainty as they can have with regard to that very limited dollar amount. They have certainty with regard to those items that they need to spend that money for. It would seem to be a, a fairly straightforward process to allocate the money that we just got to those items that we know we need on a continuing basis. And yet what we find a lot of times is that, and this is not even limited to our unique investor class, this is kind of a universal type event, people treat this as a windfall, and they have a great deal of difficulty uh, holding on to the money for a sufficiently long period of time to cover those ongoing expenses. Uh, your monthly mortgage payment or rental payment, whatever it might happen to be. You know, and, uh, you know what I find, Chris, in, in the cases that we handle, a, a lot of us handle, and certainly in my experience, a lot of times people, it's very funny. It's not that they spend it 
uh, unwisely or they spend it, they fritter it away some foolish way, it's that they spend it just more quickly than they ever thought they would spend it. Right, exactly. It goes. It just seems to go. And, you know, and, and that's, that's clearly, uh, I guess it's, it's just an unintended consequence, but it happens. Well, it's, it is and it isn't. I mean, I'll, I'll draw on behavioral finance here. What, what we've discovered through behavioral finance is that people discount the future using a very, very high discount rate. So tomorrow, for all intents and purposes, never comes because the discount rate that is applied to tomorrow is excessive. So what happens is that they, they don't think about tomorrow. You know, it's, it's too much to consider. We never know what's going to happen. There's a commercial on television, uh, a, a stop smoking commercial, and they say, you know, I could die from a bee sting. And then they give the, the odds of dying from a bee sting, you know. Well, that's that's really what people would tend to do. They would look at, oh, that's so great. I, I don't have to worry about that. I'm going to focus on today. I have the money today, and so they spend it today. You know, the other the other area that I, I find, again, to bring it right back to reality, uh, is in addition to spending it more quickly than they thought they would spend it, they're often, uh, I'll call it preyed upon by outside influences, people in their lives that come into their lives or are already in their lives that, that draw upon that, uh, that, that money and, and somehow try to influence them to, uh, to, to, you know, relieve themselves of it <laughs> and spend uh, it elsewhere. Yeah. Uh, but it's, it's a point that we've made, I know, in the other shows, and that is that I don't care how much the settlement is, I don't care how much the, the draw is, if it's not more money than these people have ever seen in their lives, let's assume that people got their annual income on January 1st. Yeah, they know it's their annual income. That's right. they know point. it's got to last for the year, but there it is on January first. What's the inclination? There are multiple inclinations. Well, While they might have good intentions about holding on to that money and have some discipline, somebody in their family could come to them and say, "You have all this money. I just need this, and I will pay you back." Well, boy, it's really hard to turn that down. Right. And as a consequence, what happens is they might not be spending the money on themselves, but they might as well because they're giving up the right to spend that money by giving it to somebody else to spend. Well, you asked, you asked a good question, if, and it's a good question for our audience to contemplate. If you got your annual salary on January 1st, would you have the discipline to make it last to the end of the year? And in light of the recent Super Bowl, I'd say the over-under on that wouldn't be too good. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm trying to internalize that myself and think about it. I'm not sure I could do that. No, I think very few of us well, well, you know, I. I have to give credit to my Army training here. Um, I don't know if they still do it, but when I was in the Army many years ago, we got paid once a month. Yeah. And, and a lot of people did exactly that, exactly that meaning they spent the money as soon as they got it. Of course, in the Army, it didn't matter. You were housed, you were clothed, you were fed. Who cares? Come on, Chris, you played poker right now. That's what <laughs> I, I was the exact opposite. I would tend to hold on to my money as long as possible to ensure that I had money toward the end. I'm not sure I could get through a year. That's a tough one. But that's a good example. You're right. I, I mean, imagine that you got paid on January 1st for the year. Now what? Yeah, that's, that's you know, I, I think all of us need to think about that. But I think what these points really bring into focus is that these unique investors, they have to look at, 
different issues when considering these tax-free, guaranteed, structured settlements. Here's another issue. Let's assume that they decide to take on the role of their own investment management person. Yeah. Most people aren't familiar with the kinds of costs involved in managing the portfolio because you're going to you're going to take that money and give it to somebody else, a broker, uh, you're going to do mutual funds potentially things like that. All of these have costs associated with them. And we tell sophisticated investors who don't always recognize this. So unsophisticated investors certainly aren't going to recognize this. The return as a consequence of including all those costs gets eaten up. It could be cut in half or more with you know, this series raising, of costs. Chris, you are raising the, the, the point that we make all the time. I know that, uh, I know that Bill uh, it, it makes this, this point on cases. He was telling me about a case he had where – the, the the thing that sold the structure was when the when the uh, cl- client when the claimant themselves said uh, how how often do I have to pay you your fee, Mister Wakeley? And Bill said there is no future fee with the structure. You, you, the structure comes and there's never any bill. Right. And that sold the deal because the financial advisor he was talking to had twelve B one fees and and you know well, percentages of the corpus of the trust exactly fees. It. If, if yeah. you have an external advisor. Yeah. He's not working for free, and he doesn't. He doesn't take the twelve B one fees. That's that's the mutual fund. Right. He's got to have, and and a lot of us. Uh, I'm a, a CFP, certified financial planner, so I use us in that term. A lot of us uh, structure our fees as a percentage of the assets that we're managing. So right. here's another point in, along those lines. If you have that outsider, and that's what he's doing, the market tanks. Guess what? Oh yeah. I don't pay you back. That's right. I still take my money for doing the best that I can for what you're doing. So not only now have you taken money out, so the the fund has dropped, the market has acted against you, your fund has dropped, and now I take cut for managing this as successfully as I think I can, and your fund is cut yet again. Well, you know what they say, Chris. The market goes up, the market goes down, the broker's still driving the Ferrari, right? That's exactly right. Okay. Well, let's take a short break right now, Chris and uh, Bill. And when we come back, uh, Professor Coyne's going to talk a little bit about how people behave even after they've decided to take a guaranteed tax-free structured settlement. You know, that's going to be interesting. So let's take a little break. We'll be right back on Ringler Radio. This is Ringler Radio, internet radio from Ringler Associates. Quite simply, the undisputed leader in structured settlements for more than 30 years. Since 1975, Ringler Associates has provided the finest structured settlement services to injured parties and their attorneys. Experience counts. Over 130,000 cases structured. We invite you to listen to our other shows on the Legal Talk Network and become a member. It's free at www.legaltalknetwork.com. Did you know that Legal Talk Network shows are also available as CLE? Including Ringler Radio. Visit law.com's CLE Center at www.clecenter.com. That's clecenter.com to enjoy listening and get CLE credit. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by the life markets that issue structured settlement annuities, including Allstate, American General Structured Settlements, Aviva, The Hartford, Liberty Life, MetLife, New York Life, John Hancock, and Prudential. 
Welcome back to Ringler Radio. I'm your host, Larry Cohen, and we're talking today with uh, my co-host, Bill Wakeley from Philadelphia. Welcome again, Bill. And Dr. Chris Coyne from St. Joseph's University. And uh, we've been discussing part three of our tremendous series on the unique investor class and some of the behavioral issues that uh, enter into their decision-making. Bill, uh, why don't you give us some instances where people have not acted rationally with money that they've received in personal injury settlements? I know we've all got stories, but maybe a quick one for our audience. Larry, I'm, I'm not sure we have time in this show. We probably need about three more shows to, to talk about some of the instances between you and I that, that we've seen over the years where somebody with all good intentions, you know, got a million dollars or $500,000 or, or $20,000 and had a very concrete plan in place and, and knew what they were going to do with the money. And a year later, you know, through other circumstances, we find out that there is no more money. Um, so, you know, when you talk about putting settlement funds into a structured settlement versus some other income vehicle, you know, we can talk about taxes and expenses and fees and comparative investments all day long. But one of the things that you and I run into all the time is just the dissipation of the funds. And, and as you said, sometimes there's a reason and sometimes there's not a reason. You know, I can't tell you how many times we've we've talked to somebody and said, well, they're out of money. Well, what did they do with it? And they can't even tell you what they did with it. Can, can I offer something along those lines? Um, this, again, ties in with the behavioral finance mm-hmm. area. What, again, we've discovered from behavioral finance is, and, and this is actually even in corporate finance, so it's not limited to recent discoveries. This is something we've known about. When people are in a situation like that and they make a decision, the decision turns out poorly, what people tend to do is not cut and run and say, okay, look, I'm done. I've gotten my loss. I've learned from this. I'm going to do something differently. They keep going. Well, it's not just that they keep going. They actually increase their level of risk and risk acceptance in an attempt to make up for the loss that they encountered. Right. It's like doubling down. You know, you you, you go to roulette, you lose. So what do you do? You double your bet and do it again. And you keep doing this until you run out of money. Or you make it back. You know, there's there's a there's a book out that says if you double down every time, you'll eventually make it back. The problem is you run out of money. You can't you, you can't get to that point where you can make it back. And you know what? Just what Bill was talking about: people losing money. And, and to me, it's a shame. It's a crime. Uh, and I remember an article written in uh, the Lawyers Weekly in Boston by uh, lawyers who said uh, basically they were they were talking against structured settlements, saying that they could do better in terms of investment return for their clients. And I, I actually felt compelled. I had to write a letter to the editor saying, you know, the real problem here is that people are looking at these funds that these claimants are getting in these injury cases as if they're pools for investment purposes. These really are monies for living expenses for these people. These aren't big things difference. to be put at risk. It's a big, big difference. And, and I think the, uh, the certainty of the, of the tax-free structure, which protects against some of these uh, behavioral issues you talked about, Chris, are critical. But, you know, I'm sure, Chris, you've seen some of the commercials on TV lately where people have been, you know, they've settled their personal injury claims, they've chosen the smart thing, put put their settlement or a part of it into a structure, and then in these commercials, they're leaning out the window shouting, it's my money and I want it now, you know? And I wonder if you could comment on how uh, that demonstrates some of the behavioral finance concepts we've discussed uh, the tugs and pulls at these people and in some of the, the wee hours of the morning when they're most vulnerable hearing these commercials and, and uh, getting ideas and doing the wrong thing. It, it's really fascinating to watch those commercials. 
And while it drives me nuts, and I'm sure it drives you guys nuts, it's a very well thought out, and I can only guess, effective commercial. So, of course, we have to ask ourselves why. And the answer is, the way it's presented, it's impossible to say no to these people. Why? Well, they make a valid point. It is their money. So that's, you, you can't deny that, you know? Right away, you're saying, yes, it is your money. Okay, so why can't I have it now? I'm an adult. It's not stated, but that's clearly the intention. I'm an adult. I know what I'm doing. And you have to sit there and say, you know, you're right. You are an adult. And by presumption, we simply presume that adults do, in fact, know what they're doing. So what argument can you create that says, no, I'm not giving you your money? It's, it's really hard to come up with something. Yeah, you know, it's, it's true. I mean, it is their money, but it's, it's really their money no matter how they've taken it. And if they've taken it in a structure and it's been done properly, it's still their money. Well, it, the, que- it, the question really is, uh, wh- you know, the enticement of what's supposed to be. It's, it's kind of like uh, taking medicine. And having the lollipop next to it, you know, you don't want it, the medicine doesn't taste as good as a lollipop. You want the lollipop, and there you go. Hey, well, what's the difference between something like this and an adult diabetic wanting candy? There you go. I mean, the point is, yes, we we agree. It's your money. It's my body. Yeah. I want it. I want the candy. It's my body. Yeah, but, that's you know, exactly yeah. right. That's exactly right. And the point is, and and you know, I think. I, I'm almost going to start a firestorm here with this one. I, I've thought about these commercials a great deal, and, and they offend me. And they offend me for this reason, that these people are using this to make that claim. But, you know, in point of fact, these companies, and there's more than one. I mean, there, I've, I've seen a number of companies represented. But these companies actually, in my mind, have a fiduciary responsibility to these individuals that they are not accepting. They are making a financial planning decision or assisting these people in a financial planning decision. And then basically they're turning them loose. They're saying, we'll get you the equivalent money today, but then you're on your own. And if you lose it, well, you know, that's too bad. You're going to have a tough life if you lose it. But, you know, the market is so good. People don't understand what it takes to earn 10% in the market. Everybody tosses this number around as if it's nothing. 10%, I can get 10%. The S&P has done 12% since, uh, you know, average 12% a year since the 30s. You know, if you took that 75, 80-year history and averaged it per year, you'd get 12%. Yeah, but, you know, in the early part of this decade, for a three-year span, we had a negative 40%. How do you live through that? There are an awful lot of people that retired at the peak of that market because they were in the fattest position they could be in, only to see their wealth position almost cut in half. And a lot of those people had to go back to work because they couldn't handle that kind of a situation. These people can't handle it either because they don't have the experience, they don't have the knowledge. That's right. They don't have the intestinal fortitude to absorb the kind of ride that the market provides. 
And that's what they fail to recognize. You know, you're, you're making a, an excellent point in the whole concept of uh, averages are very funny things. They can they can be distorted and they can distort the picture and you can get caught in the wrong timing scenario and really, really have a problem. So let's kind of summarize this three-show discussion that we've had. Now, we're going to mix these unique investor class uh, folks, and uh, they've got we've got concepts about behavioral finance that have to be overlaid on top of this class of individuals. So, Bill, what do you think about how we can summarize this uh, succinctly? The point that we made in our first show, Larry and Chris, is that these these folks are unique investors. They have. Um, um, handicaps, if you will, both physically and psychologically that, that are going to take a long time for them to overcome. So, so that being the groundwork, um, they are even more vulnerable and more susceptible to the ravages of, of the behavioral finance issues and the market risk that we talk about now. So I think, you know, the whole point there is to, to make sure that these folks are taken care of in a, in a very secure and as risk, as risk free an environment as as we can possibly put together for them. So maybe after all of these discussions, uh, Chris, it comes down to something very simple, and the fact is that these unique investors simply can't afford risk. Is that too simple a statement, Chris? No, it's not too simple a statement at all. Uh, that that they when when they accept the structured settlement, they actually have something that most of us crave, and that is certainty. And it's interesting. And certainly I can appreciate it and understand it why they would, but it's interesting to watch them then for some reason crave the uncertainty associated with all the things that we've talked about. The whole point of providing that certainty, again, in my mind, the whole point of providing that certainty was their ability to generate income in the future has either been reduced or completely taken away. And that's what this is about. And for some reason, they fail to recognize that. Well, you know, this has been a tremendous discussion. I hope our audience has appreciated and enjoyed it as much as I have. Uh, the last three shows have been great. And I want to thank you, uh, both of you, to, uh, for, for the, such a, a, a tremendous discussion. And if our listeners want to get hold of you, Dr. Coyne, how would they do that? Probably the easiest, just uh, my email at school. It's, it's uh, C-C-O-Y-N-E, my first initial and last name, at sju.edu. That's terrific. And Bill, how about yourself? Uh, Larry, our number here in Philadelphia is 1-800-869-9450 and, and email as well as uh, bwakeley, B-W-A-K-E-L-E-E at wrenglerassociates.com. You know, your your parents never gave you that Y at the end of that name. They did uh, not. You like those two I've E's. I've living uh, with that my whole life. <laughs> I can imagine. That's why you're always spelling it. I noticed that. Well, listen, uh, you can reach all Ringler Associates on ringlerassociates.com. Uh, and you'll be able to also get a lot of information about structured settlements. I, I encourage you to go to the website. It's terrific. And again, I want to thank you all for listening. Now go on out and have a great day. Thanks for listening to Ringler Radio. Ringler Associates experience counts. Since 1975, Ringler Associates has provided the finest structured settlement services to injured parties and their attorneys. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by the life markets that issue structured settlement annuities, including Allstate, American General Structured Settlements, Aviva, The Hartford, Liberty Life, MetLife, New York Life, John Hancock, and Prudential. Ring the Radio is produced by broadcast professionals at the Legal Talk Network.